take it away. So hi, um, my name is Riley Huber and I am with Ruhi Goni. Um, and we are here to interview you about your book, Poisoned Water. Um, so first question, can you give us a brief summary of Poisoned Water? Well, I guess that'll be my job. Hi, I'm Candy Huber. Um, and let's see, the city of Flint, Michigan was in deep financial trouble um, to save money. They decided that they would stop using treated water from Lake Huron, one of the Great Lakes, um, and switch the source of their water to the Flint River. Immediately after switching their source and treating the water themselves at their own water treatment plant, residents started to notice that there was something wrong with the water. And the book is really, the Flint water crisis is about how uh, the people of Flint came to this awareness about the harm that the water was doing and the government officials who at the same time were denying over a period of 18 months that there was that there were any problems with the water. Or to put it a different way, it's, and I would suggest to anyone listening to the podcast, has there ever been a time in your life where you know, you know something and people won't listen to you? And why is it that they won't listen to you, even though what you have to say is really important? So that can be true in your own life with your friends or your parents or your teachers. And it can be true for an entire city with its state government and the, and the nation at large. What happens when something is going on that you know is wrong and no one will listen to you? And how bad can that get? And how can you fight back and be heard and change the conditions? So like, what inspired you to write this specific book? Like why was the problem important to you specifically? Well, I oh. think, go ahead, Mar. No, go ahead, Candy. Um, I think that I have a, um, an interest in social justice issues. I always have written about, um, situations where people are, people who have the least access to power are not being heard and why that is and what happens when, um, when they're not, when their voices are unheard. And so Flint seemed to be a very real example of that with huge consequences for ordinary people. And I wanted to find out, I think, what was the truth? I'm, I'm often motivated by that as well. Okay, here's what appears to be the truth. What is really going on here? And um, so I think I wanted to know what really happened in Flint. Why did this really happen? And that is kind of what guided me. I think I was, the idea was first suggested to me by a librarian in Michigan. And I had a sense of, uh, outrage, how can this happen in our country, in our time? And that I really felt readers needed to know more 
both about what had been done to Flint and how Flint had fought back. And it was some sense that this is a story that must be told. And I think that's what made me feel like this is a book that had to happen. And I think that the, the young adult part of it is um, interesting too. I mean, I feel that young adults these days are very tuned into issues of fairness and justice. And this story was such a fit for those who have a special sensitivity to um, this kind of unfairness and so it, that, to me, that was a, a powerful um, pairing of subject and reader. So that was gonna lead into part of um, my next question, but um, the other part of that question was, how has the water crisis empowered you to share the story? Like, how did it empower you to share the story to this audience? Well, I think on the one hand, you know, the book has been well received. And so that means it's gone to your teacher and to schools and libraries around the country. We got to speak on quite a few radio shows in many parts of the country. So it kind of gave us a vehicle. You know, the outlines of the story were known. It's just like many things in our world where you kind of basically know something but our book went more deeply and it gave us and then readers a way to go past. Yeah, okay, Flint, yeah, water, whatever, lead, something, goodbye, what happened last night to the Yankees? You know, and um, it, it gave us a way to go more deeply and therefore I think a vehicle to allow our readers um, and in particular young people, but also you know, teachers, librarians, parents, to learn more and, and to go more deeply. So I think that is sort of how it worked. The other thing that was kind of amazingly well-timed was um, that both the Black Lives Matter, well, George Floyd, and, and I don't mean to say this was well-timed, but uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the issue of Black Lives Matter um, was just bubbling to the surface as our book was released. And of course, our book came out in the middle of the pandemic. And suddenly uh, what happened in Flint seemed to be a microcosm of what was going on in the, in the pages of the newspaper every day. Um, there were so many um, commonalities to the Flint story and the Black Lives Matter story and this sense of, of um, being not being heard and the fact of the disparities and outcomes in the pandemic. And all of these issues um, seemed to totally related to, to what we'd been writing about and speaking about. So I think the issues of the day really kind of helped to amplify the, um, the value of, of the book. So, um, like the, I heard that the water crisis in Flint happened like some time ago, right? A few years ago, right? Um, so 
is it still affecting people today? And if so, like, how is it affecting people today? Well, it's so odd because one of the issues with um, Flint was this sense of this deep, deep sense of mistrust of, of government officials, but also it's a distrust of the water. And so while the, the tests have come back, um, the official water test results have come back clean and fine, um, you are hard pressed to find people in Flint who freely, willingly want to drink the tap water. And there, you know, there were millions of dollars that have been spent on replacing the lead pipes, the service lines in the ground. And um, that project is not yet finished. I think they said it was, it was supposed to have been complete by 2020, it's, it's ongoing. So as long as, I mean, a lot of residents are saying, as long as there are lead pipes in the ground, um, how can we be sure, you know, when they do the testing of the water, you're testing, you know, a number of different households and taking an average, but you're not testing every household. So how do we know that the water that is coming out of our taps is lead free? Um, so there's, there's a very deep distrust of the water. People, uh, you know, kids have grown up without drinking the water and they're afraid to drink the water. Um, there are other repercussions from the story that are more serious. Um, you know, this, the, the school district has learned that um, I think now it's up to about a third of their um, classes are, are special ed, you know, in, include special ed kids and that there's just a monumental task. Which can be a result of lead poisoning. Of lead poisoning, I'm sorry, yes. And the harm of lead, it affects children's brains very severely. And so that's uh, probably the most serious legacy of the Flint water crisis. And, um, and I think, and then you have the various criminal charges that have been filed and refiled and refiled again. Those are pending and we don't know if more people will be criminally charged. Right now, the, go the former governor, Rick Snyder, who was in charge during much of this, um, is still facing some criminal charges and as are others. And then there are the civil suits where people feel that they've been, um, you know, that they've been wronged and are deserving of some kind of compensation for their suffering. And so I think there's been a, something like a $640 million settlement um, that's been agreed upon, but now the, the lawyers involved will take a good third of that. And so, um, you know, I think the people in Flint feel overall that there's not been enough accountability yet in this story that it happened and pretty much everybody got away with it. Um, and they're hoping that um, more will occur. They're watching the, the criminal um, proceedings pretty closely. And there are some other lawsuits out there against some consultants and, and uh, the EPA and other sources of money. So um, we'll see, but it's unbelievable that it's been going on since 
2014, and um, this is still playing out. And, and the estimate now is that over a billion dollars has been spent to um, fix Flint. And it's not fixed. You know, and of course, Flint is very poor, about 42% of people living in Flint are um, under the poverty line. So a lot of the places where lead accumulates is in the soldering of the, you know, fixtures in the bathroom and the shower um, and the water heater and stuff like that. And um, a lot of people just can't afford to have all of their indoor plumbing replaced. So it's a, it's an unsatisfying evolution, I think, for, for people in Just to, So to briefly say the outcomes today are the lead in the, in the, that is in the bodies of children and how it's damaging them. Um, and overall, the lack of trust. And I guess what I would say to anyone listening to this podcast, what you assume you can breathe the air and you can drink the water. What if everybody told you that was fine and you were in fact being poisoned day by day. How and when would you go back to trusting people? Mm. Maybe how never. How do you regain that? Yeah, how do you regain that? And, and some people have said they never will. I mean, I think it was Karma Lewis who is a big booster of Flint and community activist. And she said, you know, I don't think I'll ever be able to drink uh, tap water again. I think that part of my brain is broken. And I thought that's a that's a really good way of putting it, um, and I think that's true for a lot of people there. Um, so for the next question is, um, what emotions or thoughts were you experiencing as you researched and or wrote this book? Um, a lot of them, I would say. <laughs> It was a very emotional ride or a very emotional book to work on, um, in part because people's reluctance to talk once I got there really, um, you know, set me, uh, caused me to, to doubt my own, uh, was I the person who could tell this story? Was I authorized to tell the Flint story? I'm an outsider. I'm not an insider. And so um, I really had to think about whether as an outsider, I was authorized to tell the story. And I really struggled with that. And I think once I came out the other side of it, I, my answer was, was yes, I am. I, I know how to do this. I have the skills to do this. This is what I know how to do. And there are certain, um, uh, there's a certain value to being an outsider. You know, there's a certain value to being an insider, but an outsider can, can perhaps see things in perspective or a little more clearly in some way um, and can compare with other, you know, can, can give context possibly. So I really wrestled with that and it was, it was a painful thing. <laughs> mm. um, but I think it made, as I said earlier, I think it made for a deeper, better book. Um, and I was ultimately glad to, to wrestle with all that at a time when I think publishing also has, has wrestled with those questions. Mm. 
that's all the questions we have prepared. So do you have any quick concluding remarks before we end? Well, thank you. Really enjoyed uh, speaking with you both and with your, your classroom. And um, I hope you will go on to write um, powerful books of your own. Thank you. My name is Ruhi and I'm here with Mrs. Briggs. She works with the Michigan Police Department and she worked with them during the Flint water crisis. Um, for people who don't know what the Flint water crisis was, could you describe to us what happened in Flint, Michigan during the water crisis? Absolutely. Uh, thank you for allowing me to uh, speak to you about the state response. Uh, during the Flint water crisis, uh, it started a few years before we even became involved, but basically it, it stemmed from a, a water uh, system shift. They went from one system to a new uh, water supply and the treatment of the water uh, wasn't sufficient enough for um, the, the contents of the water and it, it leached uh, lead from the pipes into the water uh, that was consumed and used by Flint residents for over a year and a half. Um, of time before um, any recognition of the issue was uh, realized. And then at that point quickly uh, became a state uh, response for um, water distribution. Okay, so um, how did the crisis affect the city? And if it's still affecting it, how is it still affecting the city? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it had a huge impact on the city of Flint, uh, not only um, the, the water system and the health of the residents. It also economically impacted this, the city of Flint. Um, there was, uh, I, I think many, many months of water distribution. There was also um, mental health uh, issues in the city, uh, providing for that kind of response uh, to, to make sure that the citizens um, while they were impacted negatively by this disaster that we could um, help them move forward um, and move past it. Uh, I think it still is impacting the city of Flint. Um, I think it's not something that's going to go away. I think uh, some of the decisions that were made outside of uh, a lot of our control uh, just impact the ability for some residents to move past. Uh, there are um, efforts underway to replace pipes. I think they've done quite a quite a bit of good fast work on that effort, um, but I think there's probably still more work to do. Um, so if you're comfortable with this, um, how did the crisis affect you personally? Yeah, uh, that's a good one. Um, I think I alluded to it a little bit in the presentation and I'll, I'll talk briefly about it uh, at the time. I had been back from maternity leave for two days. I had a three month old baby at home um, and we activated uh, on the 5th of January and worked 12 hour days, seven days a week for at least two months before one day off was even a possibility. Um, 
that's probably not, it's not just me. That was uh, probably at least uh, 40 to 50 people that were in the same, same boat as I was. So um, it was the number one priority. Uh, my mother-in-law would bring my daughter to the office so I could see her uh, on my lunch break. Uh, we didn't get many of those either. So we worked long, long hours, but it was, it's definitely satisfying. I know um, when you're working it, you get tired, you get burned out, but uh, it's worth every, every minute of it when you can see the other side. Um, and I start, I probably start of, start, should have started with this question, but um, what were you do doing during the crisis? How did you help out? You were in the emergency management. So what do they do? What do you do? Yeah, good, good question. Emergency management, we're kind of uh, on the sidelines until something happens. We do a lot of planning. Uh, for disasters and how to respond effectively. Uh, so in emergency management, uh, we did, we coordinate all of the response at the Michigan State Police were what's called the incident command um, group, basically. Uh, our director is responsible for um, command and control of state incident response here in Michigan which means that every other agency that comes into our state emergency operations center uh, kind of works at their direction. Uh, and I work for that, that person, not directly, but I work uh, for them when I'm in the uh, state emergency operations center. Uh, so what primarily we did um, was coordinate the distribution of water and filters in the city um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, we started with door-to-door -door distribution and a couple of points of distribution at fire stations, which then transitioned to nine community points of distribution in the nine city wards. So all of those efforts uh, took planning. Uh, I was involved in the planning of several of those efforts, uh, primarily the water response teams that went door-to-door -to -door and then the community points of distribution. So uh, deeply involved in planning, which planning was a uh, was not my forte before this, but now I've learned uh, everything I need to know about setting up a point of distribution. Um, so what, what do you think that the government during this crisis did and what did they do well and what they, what could have they, what could they have done better? Uh, yeah, um, from my vantage point, um, I think what we did well in our response is we didn't follow the politics. Um, politics have the a way of taking over response um, and letting it affect how you handle it. And as responders, we just did what we were charged to do. We we got water where it needed to be as quickly as we could do that. Um, I, as far as done better, I think we all learned a lot about um, plans we had in place that we didn't know were there. Uh, and so we could have probably pulled those off the shelf a lot quicker had we known that they existed. Um, so I think a better review of the things that we have existing here in the state of Michigan would have put us in a better place uh, walking into that disaster. Okay. Um, and lastly, if people can still help right now um, with the effects that are happening right now, um, what can they do and like, can they help? Mm, that's a good question. I didn't think about it in that way when I read it. Um, I think there are probably volunteer 
organizations still in that area doing work. Um, I can't say for sure what it is that they're doing. Um, I'm sure that there are still opportunities to financially donate to the city of Flint through the United Way. And that's where donations had gone during the disaster. Um, I think a lot of those donations at this point are going towards like mental health um, initiatives in the city. And um, so this isn't really a question that I plan to ask, but when you read that question, what did you plan to say before? <laughs> That's a good one. I, I was thinking more along the lines of like, how can people help with, uh, you know, kind of preparing for something like this or how can they help during a, a disaster? So that's mm -hmm. kind of how I, I read it, but it was probably just my oversight. I was probably just reading quickly. I mean, that's still a great question. So how can people help with preparedness during a disaster? I think you're already a trained reporter. So during any disaster, I think just knowing uh, your own level of preparedness and being prepared for disasters that happen frequently in your area. Uh, that's probably the most important thing that you can do um, in a situation like the Flint water crisis. I'm not sure that there was any preparation that anyone could have done differently um, or better. Uh, so I think at this, when we think about things like the Flint water crisis, it's leaning on those people um, around you uh, to you know, come together as a, as a group, as a team and kind of take initiative. And I think that happened a lot in the city of Flint. Uh, we had a lot of uh, active members of the community participating in recovery efforts. You know, don't just sit back and complain about something and I'm not saying this lightly. Uh, I worked in a lot of those long-term recovery groups too, but uh, come to the group with a solution come to the team with an idea. Uh, there is no idea that's too uh, far-fetched. So just bring them all. And uh, I promise you that they will be heard in a situation like that. Everyone wants to, to help whoever they can. Okay, um, so I think that's it that we have for the Flint water crisis questions. But I did hear that during our presentation that you were a guest feature speech I mean, you were a guest talker in our class and you gave a presentation. In that presentation, I heard that you that emergency management was also helping with COVID relief in Michigan. So I'm going to hand this over to Riley, who's going to talk a little bit about COVID in Michigan. Sorry. Hi. So um, how is, what are you guys doing currently to support the COVID pandemic? Uh, so in Michigan, um, our health agency, our Department of Health and Human Services um, is the lead agency. However, we're kind of that command and control entity uh, helping to move things forward. Right now, our biggest effort is setting up some vaccination sites, some mass vaccination sites uh, to get more um, what we're calling shots in arms um, and making sure that we can vaccinate as much of the population as quickly as possible to mitigate spread. Uh, we also are still involved in testing initiatives that are happening statewide. Um, I, but mostly right now, our efforts are focused on PPE distribution uh, or personal protective equipment, uh, masks and uh, gloves and all of the 
things that they need at the, the hospitals and long-term care facilities. So that's still a priority and it will be for a while um, running our warehouse with that stuff in it and distributing it out and then vaccines. Vaccines are the, the hot spot right now. So how do you feel you um, in your unit is doing right now? Oh, that's like the loaded question. Um, I, I think we're, I will be honest and say that I think we're all just getting tired. Um, it's a long time to respond to something. Um, and at some point you just get tired. Uh, we have a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that's going on outside of COVID now too. Um, when things slowed down in the fall, we picked a lot of projects back up and now we're trying to juggle those projects and also handle increasing coronavirus uh, activities. Um, there are challenges like any other disaster, um, you know, with coordination and getting answers from other entities that you need them from yesterday and you can't get them until next week. Um, and so as you try to move things forward, at some point you just make decisions you have to make. That's really cool. Um, I think that's all the questions I improvised for this. Um, thank you so much for being a part of this and taking the time to interview with us. Um, I hope you're gonna have, I hope you have a good day. I hope you, I wish you well in the coronavirus response and um, thank you very so much. Yes, you're welcome. You guys did a great job. There, there, there's no way thank there's you. something greater in my opinion. Thanks for listening and have a great day.